0: Welcome to Critical Cinema, a podcast about movies that are critical to understanding film history, pop culture, ourselves, or some downright critical failures. Join us as we analyze all kinds of movies from canonized classics down to unseen gems, while partaking in one of life's simplest pleasures, talking movies. I'm your host Grant Clevegard, and joining me today is no co-host, but a couple cats wandering around the, the studio where I'm recording. So, if you hear a few meows here and there, you'll know it's my co-host today. But on today's docket, have I got a special one for you. Uh, As a John Wick fan myself, it has been a, a great pleasure to see the buzz around the beekeeper early this year during the dumpuary season as sort of the surprise hit of the year so far, making it a critical movie to 2024. But before that, I just want to talk about some unrelated watches that I've been watching this week. So as I've read through a book I recently got Quentin Tarantino's Cinema Speculation, an important, sacred text to any film bro out there. I've been uh, reading about the movies from the early 70s to the early 80s that he talked about that were formative to to making him the filmmaker that we know and love and some despise today. But I was just reading through, and one of the first chapters that really caught my attention was his chapter on the movie Bullet, starring Steve McQueen. I always heard great things about Bullet, whether it was from my time watching Pawn Stars as a child late at night on the History Channel, where Rick Harrison would uh, fawn over anything Steve McQueen that came into his shop. It was just always a sort of curiosity to me, the movie Bullet or Steve McQueen in general. So the only prior experience I really have with the man himself was in The Great Escape, where which was kind of a breakout role for him at the time. So my McQueen understanding was limited, but... The way Tarantino talked about him in his book, it made him seem like he was the coolest man in the world. And, of course, many people believe that reading the reviews prior to watching the movie. But as I watched Bullet, it became readily apparent that maybe it was just a a you-had-to-be-there sort of thing. Where he didn't really seem like the coolest man in the world. He seemed more just like a, a wooden statue at times where he would show no emotion and just... Blair at the, the passing by rookie cop or commissioner or senator or what have you. So he really just seemed more like uh, just a chiseled statue, much like Clint Eastwood could be described, but just with less witty dialogue. So I didn't really get the appeal from that angle. But other aspects of the film that really caught my attention were the well-discussed um, style of the film, as well as the the huge multi-multi uh, um, scene car chase that took place at around the two-thirds mark of the film. That was that really lived up to the expectations. So uh, they did not disappoint there. But Bullet, definitely a a curious movie that followed um, Steve McQueen's uh, Lieutenant Bullet, as the as the movie's named. But it really functioned as a typical sort of cop thriller where he had to protect state's witness for 48-ish hours so he could testify for the high-ranking district attorney and uh, aspiring senator in the movie. So that was made readily apparent. But another aspect a lot of people talked about was the lack of plot in Bullet, and uh, that was also readily apparent. So not much plot was very important to the film, you could definitely follow where the film was going if you have any familiarity with the sort of cops and crooks genre, but it's definitely a 70s movie that is made for 70s audiences, where today's audiences, it feels like they need their handheld and plot points explained in depth, and half the movie is exposition. Bullets, well, not that movie. It's really a vibes movie, describing it that way. uh, It's more so about the style. About the character of Bullet, who oftentimes functions almost like a statue, but you definitely feel his determined demeanor in those glares he shares with other actors on screen, but it's definitely more about the vibes and the coolness, and that's what everyone talks about with Bullet. So, uh, definitely a movie to check out if you're into sort of the 1970s uh, lone man cop that's really good at his job, not gonna... Crack down, not going to break out into emotions too often. So, well, it's definitely an interesting watch. It's on Tubi, the God streaming service. It's free. So if you don't have a Tubi subscription, what are you doing, man? Uh, definitely a, a, a relic of the 70s. But in Tarantino, if he had Letterbox, he would probably rate it five stars. I rated it about three and a half, leaning towards that three. But again, that car chase really redeemed it in my eyes, near the end. But one of the other free watches I had this week where uh, I was sort of curious, I heard more about the movie uh, than probably any other movie in the past few years uh, going into it, and that was The Martian. So I recently read the book Project Hail Mary by the author of The Martian that the movie's based on, Andy Weir, and from his writing in Project Hail Mary, I was definitely intrigued enough to check out the movie The Martian, which I had heard so much about all those years ago and during the 2015 Oscars for the uh for the maybe least exciting best picture category, The Martian was definitely in the in the front runners there, but I I felt I finally had to give it a try since I read Project Hail Mary, I really liked it. And The Martian is a a pretty similar concept to that book that Weir's going with there. So, even though The Martian came out uh, years before Project Tail Mary, it's sort of a companion piece to the book, I feel. Where it's two lone men in space, surviving with nothing but their wits and what they have on their isolated spacecrafts and planets to help them. Uh, It's really sort of a similar story there, but... In The Martian, it follows a story of Mark Watney, who is an astronaut on the Ares-3 crew, which is, we can assume, the third manned expedition to Mars that NASA has launched. And when a large Martian dust storm hits, it sort of throws everything into a tizzy, and the crew has to evacuate their mission as soon as possible. The only catch is, from the six crew members, Mark Watney, played by Matt Damon, He's hit by a piece of debris in the storm, punctures his suit, his vitals go offline, and his crew um, believes him dead. So they evacuate Mars without him, and that's where the story really kicks off. So obviously, if you're familiar at all with the movie The Martian, uh, Mark Watney did not, in fact, die. But he had to uh, sort of stitch up his wound, staple it, and uh, survive on Mars until help could arrive. So I really found the the Martian to be the opposite of Bullet in a sense, where it's not a Vibes movie at all, but it's all about the plot and the procedure. So just like Project Hail Mary, if you're interested in Andy Weir's writing at all, he's all about the process, all about the sort of procedure, all about the problem solving in his writing and the Martian Ridley Scott's movie is no different. So The movie follows Mark Watney. He's having to solve all these problems, like how is he going to um, live for over a year on Mars in a a shelter that's only designed to last a month? How is he going to eat with the rations of six crew members that are only supposed to last a month and survive over a year, maybe four years, based on when the next scheduled mission is planned to launch? How is he going to contact NASA? How's he going to let them know he's alive? All these things are, are constant problems Mark Watney's running into in The Martian. And it's just a really, a really great movie. But why am I explaining it so in depth? It's one of the most watched movies on Letterboxd. It's in the million and a half watched club. So if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably seen The Martian. But uh, if you haven't seen it yet, I recommend checking it out my biggest complaints with the movie was it seemed pretty convenient plot wise every problem seemed to have a solution at the ready uh so again it that's just how movies are if if you had a problem with it which i don't know which i kind of did It can take away from the overall experience. It seemed like he was never in any real danger. You kind of knew he was going to survive the whole time. It just had that tone. It had that sentimentality that you couldn't really escape from the entire movie. Uh, Even though there were some tense scenes where little things went wrong, the big mission itself was never really in any doubt, which kind of took away from the movie in a sense. But again... It's not really that kind of movie where the ending's in any doubt. It's really all about the process, the problem solving. So I really enjoyed seeing him uh, discover how to grow potatoes on Mars. Like I knew going in, that was a whole thing. Like everybody memed about the potato aspect of the film on social media for the past almost decade since the movie came out. So I knew he was going to eat potatoes, but it was still interesting seeing the process of how he grew the potatoes, fertilized them with his own uh his own poop and 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 just ingenuity that went into filling his space shelter with dirt and creating an environment where he could farm. But again, things go wrong in the movie and the potatoes sort of or the shelter blows up at one point, the potatoes freeze. And he's out of that reliable food source. Sort of throwing a wrench in the works. But again, it's not unsolvable. Uh, it does seem convenient, the timing. But again, if it wasn't, there wouldn't be a movie. But other aspects of the movie I liked were the... It just felt like a time capsule, in a sense. So it came out in 2015. And it definitely feels like the most 2015 movie I've ever seen. It's a very late Obama administration movie in a sense that there's still this this sense of hope this sense of just unbridled maybe unwarranted optimism for the future believing we can all come together and politics is sort of secondary to the story even though the the story hinges on sort of the USA and China, and all these world governments working together to bring one man home from Mars. Politics almost takes a backseat in a movie that should be all about the politics. There are little disagreements among the members of NASA as to how go, how to go about things, whether to save Mark Watney at all, whether to cover it all up, and I think that would have been a more interesting movie to see if if sort of the pessimism we know that is out there in the real world sort of takes over and all these, like, CIA cover-ups from the 60s and 70s we now know to be true, if the movie sort of took that angle in a modern sort of CIA cover-up, except it's NASA, so will they cover it up so they don't lose funding? Will they um, publicize the mission like they did in the actual movie so they can uh, sort of have this hero moment to, to, again... It all comes down to the money, so they can receive even more funding. I think that would be a more interesting movie, sort of the -the behind-the-scenes politicking, rather than the sort of large-scale, just everything's all too convenient, bringing Mark Watney home, and um, just the optimism and the the sort of nothing-can-go-wrong messaging that the movie has. So... Again, I enjoyed the movie. I gave it four stars on Letterboxd. I I reviewed it in in um sort of a, a snarky one sentence review. Uh, let me just pull it up here. It's the the perfect encapsulation of the year twenty fifteen. The needle drops are the sonic equivalent to plain oatmeal. The dialogue is painfully grating at times, especially the the pop culture references, and the characters are cliche as hell. And yet. I gave it four stars. So another big point of the movie is Mark Watney is stuck with his commanding officer's music on Mars since that must be the only thing they brought along to listen to is what the commander says. Kind of like a road trip where the driver picks the music. But it's all disco music, and I'm not a disco hater or anything, but it's kind of the just most meat and potatoes disco as Howie from uh, I Think You Should Leave would say. Which is usually a compliment, but in this case, we've heard all these songs a million times. It feels like nails on the chalkboard whenever a song plays, and uh, yeah, just the most 2015 Reddit sort of references where it's 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 nerd shit in a sense. So uh, if that it's if that's grading to you, maybe this won't be the movie to you. I know it's pretty divisive on on Letterboxd among my my following at least, but. I, I kind of enjoyed the, the process. It outweighed sort of the negatives there. So if that's interesting to you, I won't spoil the ending, even though it kinda comes prepackaged, pre spoiled. Bring Mark Watney home. Um, yeah. It's 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 an interesting watch just for the process alone. And we don't get too many movies that are are sort of process driven anymore. We kinda get these these exposition dumps that are, are labelled as blockbusters nowadays, but I enjoyed The Martian, I think the praise it got was warranted to an extent, but I think some of the praise might have been coming for the wrong reasons, like praising the references, praising the needle drops, but I think if you peel back that layer of, of the potato, let's say, uh, there is a, an enjoyable process-driven movie underneath, so I'll stand by my 4-star rating, maybe 3.5 stars is, is what it's closer to, but again... Movies, they're subjective, love it, hate it, that's up to you. Without further ado, I think I'll get into the feature presentation now. If you can hear the meowing in the background, that's my co-host telling me to move on, so that I will. So today's feature presentation is none other than 2024's The Beekeeper. It's been in theaters for about a little over a month now, and it has received rave reviews from some lackluster reviews from others, and I'm here to to discuss why that may be the case. So, Beekeeper is critical to understanding 2024 films, simply because it is the first sort of hit of the year. It was released in January, which is usually dumpuary month, when studios are, are releasing their movies they kind of expect to fail, not do well, that are sort of the B movies of today, where... You're not going to find too much quality. Not too many Oscar winners are, are going to be released in these couple months here. But surprisingly, The Beekeeper earned over a hundred and forty five million dollars and counting on a forty million dollar budget. It's still in theaters, which speaks to its uh its its legs. It's it's la- outlasting a lot of movies. Like it looks like it's going to outlast Madam Web, the Sony Marvel sort of co production that. Uh, those are usually pitched as the the big tentpole productions of the year, but we have The Beekeeper outlasting that. It outlasted Night Swim, which is you horror movie about a an evil pool. And usually horror movies do well in Dumpuary. I know Megan of recent years has has done really well, sort of becoming a pop culture phenomenon. And horror movies in general are usually uh, pretty reliable, earning their money back. Maybe doing well with not as large of a budget, but here we have the beekeeper just taking on all comers and uh, refusing to give up. So, a little like Statham in the movie, the beekeeper's got some got some hands. But uh, it's also critical in the sense that it follows the legacy of the John Wick franchise. So, I know I would call the beekeeper the most John Wick at home movie we've ever seen, so it has all the hallmarks, the calling cards, the tropes of a John Wick movie, uh, if you're familiar with that franchise, uh, it's it's and its spawn of sort of limitless rip-offs. It follows sort of the professional hitman or muscle coming out of retirement in order to do one last job for revenge because he's been pushed over the edge by this new up-and-coming uh evil criminal organization in a sense so the john wick franchise features the in the first movie his inciting incident his dog is killed in this movie jason statham has a little more on the line but really it just comes down to his bees are killed and that's the the driving force behind him wanting to to seek revenge another reason this movie is critical is because Following that trend, it has something to say about our culture, so uh, there are some political elements to this movie, but they're so scattered it sort of removes any political messaging this movie could have uh it just takes everything from all sides of the political spectrum from uh left wing sort of anti-corruption, anti corruption oh. anti anti big business messaging to the extreme right wing and it follows some QAnon conspiracy theories to just right wing talking points you would find on fox news as as plot points so uh, anyone can really go into this movie and see whatever political message they want but it's diluted by the opposing political messages sort of removing any anything this movie has to say in in the process but it's it's a hit with, with all audiences. It must speak to enough members of each party across the political divide. So maybe that was a, a sound strategy to appeal to as many people as possible. But another reason this movie is critical is David Ayer, the director, I feel is is doing his best to avoid being thrown in director jail coming off a, a pretty rough stretch of movies, including Right, the uh, late 2010s release that was hailed as a as the next Star Wars by its writer, which is never a good sign, and failed to live up to any and all expectations, being sort of a reductionist view of racism and, and policing. Prior to the 2020 protests, it soured the movie even more, even after having a, a lackluster Netflix reception. And also Suicide Squad, the original one, not the James Gunn version. Ayer brought us that movie, and it was uh, hated by audiences so much that James Gunn had to step in and make his own version of the Suicide Squad less than, what, five years later? Sort of retconning the whole thing, and I believe it's even a point in the beginning to destroy that movie from audiences' memories. So, not the greatest uh, streak for David Ayer there. He also had a movie released in 2020, but COVID kind of ruined any perception of what was released during that year, I believe, from, from popular culture. So he might have got a mulligan on that one. But David Ayer, I believe he definitely avoided Director's Jail with this one. I think Beekeeper 2 will probably happen based on the, the earnings. So at least we have that to look forward to or dread, depending on how you, you liked or hated the Beekeeper. So plot, let's get into it. Uh, it basically follows the titular beekeeper, Adam Clay, as it opens up with him sharing a, sort of a tender moment with his landlady, who is basically renting him out, part of her farm, the family farm, to raise his bees, have his apiaries, and just live a, a simple sort of country life after what we assume is retirement, and he's just become a professional beekeeper. So it opens on on sort of maybe the emotional heart of the movie, and you get all the emotion you need from the the conversation between Jason Statham's character and Felicia Rashad, Mrs. Cosby herself, her character sort of acting as this maternal or even uh, grandmother like figure to to Jason Statham, and he, Adam Clay, I should say, and Clay, he he just says something like, "Thank you for." for putting up with me and my bees which would seem ridiculous in any other context but Statham plays it so like stone cold straight face that we're just on board we believe him from from the get go and he gets into other aspects like you're the only one who's ever believed in me uh your uh your and her her generosity so he basically touches on on the range of of what she's done for him and well so he's grateful and he goes back to his beekeeping barn, makes her a nice jar of honey with her name on it that he's going to give her as a gift the next day. But before that, uh, the, the real uh, uh, inciting incident of the movie kicks off. So, as as anyone knows, phone scams are rampant nowadays. I, myself, I, I prefer not to even pick up the phone when I get a, a phone call. Let it go straight to voicemail if I don't have it in my contacts. And uh, it just seems to be the way to go nowadays where 90% of all calls you receive either aren't necessary, they could be a text message, or they're just straight up scams. I know there was a HBO miniseries, The Telemarketers, that goes in depth into the world of, of phone scams. So, highly recommend checking that one out. It's a little better in terms of quality than most documentaries I've seen, and it takes place over... Over a decade, so it's really wide ranging and and heart wrenching at the end. I say, but back to the beekeeper. So after Felicia Rashad foolishly picks up the phone, answers a phone call in the year 2024, uh, we know things are are about to kick off because on the other end of that phone is sort of a Gen Z Wolf of Wall Street esque office where they are uh, just on their computers in a neon drenched sort of it almost looks like a gamer sort of lounge where they're just participating in all sorts of the sleaziest sort of phone activities one can imagine. And uh once she's on the hook, the uh phone caller says to the to the bullpen of, of scammers, we've got a live one, and then lets his boss, sort of the Jordan Belfort of the, the call center, take over. So we just see with with all this style, all this neon. The this scammer sort of hake Eloise Parker for all she's worth. And it just feels like it takes a million years for the scam to, to go through. We see the whole process of sort of him walking her through, like downloading the company software and then giving over her password and her login information for all of her bank accounts that have all her retirement savings, that have all the money for the charity she runs in there upwards of two three four million dollars i didn't see the full list of numbers but her charity helping out sort of underprivileged youth in school over two million million dollars just gone after she gives over this her information to who she believes is tech support trying to help her out and they do give some pretty convincing sort of explanations for why she can't seek help elsewhere because her computer will sort of shut down and delete all of her family photos, all of her memories, all of her documents from the past and really we're kind of on her side when she's sort of weighing the risk versus the reward of trusting this guy on the other end of the phone even though we know he's the sleaziest scum imaginable. So it breaks our heart to see her do this, but we completely understand why. We hear these stories every day of of people being scammed, people losing everything because of one wrong picked up phone call and trusting the wrong person online, clicking the wrong link. It's just the sort of hot button issue of the day that everyone can relate to, no matter which side of the political spectrum you're on, really. And I think this is where this movie finds its niche. It sort of finds its spot as a modern day exploitation movie. Really exploiting all the fears we have of just picking up a phone call nowadays that is a a prescient issue, but no one seems to have the answer for. So we're just kind of stuck living in this hell where we can't pick up the phone, we can't click on the wrong link, or else we could lose everything. And there are other aspects where this movie functions as sort of the modern day version of an exploitation movie, but I'll get into that a little later. So... This inciting incident Felicia Rashad Eloise Parker uh, gives up all her money to this company and her laptop that she's on screen cuts out to black she soon realizes exactly what's happened when the phone cuts out she sees all her bank account information once the screen turns back on and they've all been zeroed out so she's just frozen in place sort of shaking realizing what she's done and sadly uh She decides the best course of action or really in her mind, the only course of action for her to do is to take her own life. So just this heartbreaking moment, Jason Statham the next day or later that night, it's not really clear, but he walks into her house. He goes to deliver the jar of honey, doesn't receive an answer. And then we see him walk into her bedroom and there's been a gun fired. And without showing it, we know exactly what's happened. Eloise has, has taken her own life because of the shame, the the loss, and just the the horrible sort of experience she's been through realizing what's just happened. So that that's the John Wick's dog being killed moment of the movie there. So after being questioned by, by police, the FBI, we learn that Eloise's daughter is a FBI agent who never calls, and never really uh, comes back home to visit her her mom, which is why Jason Statham is sort of the, the surrogate child to her, but that's another aspect of the uh, sort of exploitation angle this movie takes. It really appeals to old people, not only in the, uh, the phone scams, the internet scams that are rampant, and old people are especially susceptible to, but it also takes their side in the, your children should call you more, your children should come visit you more, so Maybe that's why this movie has uh, has more legs because old people and retirees have more time to go to the movies and this is a, a message that's really resonating with them. So it's a real uh, be nicer, my kids should be nicer to me movie that flicks with old people. Um, but moving on from there, that's the inciting incident that convinces Jason Statham's character to come out of retirement to avenge his sweet landlady. Uh, The FBI agent daughter is also sort of on the case, but she more so gets wrapped up in just following the string of Jason Statham's revenge tour across the state of Massachusetts for some reason. But uh, she's just in the wake of his revenge, sort of admiring the work he's doing immediately after the coming out of retirement sequence that resembles John Wick a lot. Jason Statham, I should I should be calling him by his character name, Adam Clay, the beekeeper himself, Mr. Beekeeper, shows up at the call center, the scam call center building, where it we know that the callers have been calling from. Takes a couple cans of gasoline and uh, torches the whole place while delivering witty one-liners and just nonchalant warnings. After taking out a couple security guards just flatly saying to the receptionist, everyone in the building, he's going to blow up the building. There's nothing you can do about it. He's just too much of a badass. So we kind of get that vibe in that way. Uh, I thought it was it was pretty entertaining to see him just have no a no-nonsense approach just to blowing up an entire building. Don't know how well that would fly in real life. I feel like there would be a, a little more of a police response, but, well, it's a movie. So after he blows up that... First lowest-level call center that we know scammed Eloise Parker out of all the money, killing a few security guards. He's well on his way to, to tracking down who's in charge of this whole criminal operation. And that's when the big bad of the movie is revealed. Sweet little baby face Josh Hutcherson plays the sort of head honcho of this whole scam call operation. And he's coming pretty hot off of the Five Nights at Freddy's movie, even though I thought it was a pretty lackluster movie. Another big hit. That might have not have been a a critical success. So, Josh Hutcherson plays the boss of these organizations, and it's later revealed he's even the son of the president, sort of played by the Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, Barack Obama amalgamation. So that definitely uh gives this movie a little bit more of a a right wing crank sort of QAnon angle in that way. Josh Hutcherson plays the head honcho of this organization. We find out later this is how he's been fundraising to sort of fund his mother's run for the presidency, even though she claims she didn't need it. They're already independently wealthy. We never really get a, a solid answer to that. But this is how she's gotten all her money to fundraise because her son, Josh Hutcherson, has been embezzling all this money, stealing all this money from old vulnerable Vulnerable people. There's even a line Jason Statham says, like, stealing money from old people is worse than stealing from a baby because at least a baby has parents to look out for it or something. So, again, uh, a true old person movie that is sympathetic to the plight of, of Grandpa Simpsons everywhere. Um, He also has a quote saying, like, to protect the hive. He, he's always talking about protecting the hive, which we assume is all of humanity, even though... uh who really deems what's best for humanity. I guess he's sort of the the one-man adjudicator in that sense. So he's all about protecting the hive, and because that's what beekeepers do, uh, they oftentimes have to... Uh, he says, when the queen produces defective offspring, then it's time to find a new queen. So basically implying he's going to kill the president at some point, which is... Uh, yeah, pretty pretty wild swing from left field or right field, depending on which political affiliation you view this movie from. But I find it interesting, that aspect of the movie, where his ultimate goal ends up being to either kill the president or kill the president's uh, son in that way. Since, again, we have all these news stories about Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, just partying doing drugs doing all these things that warrant sort of congressional committees to investigate uh well i don't know if they're warranted but they're doing it anyway for political reasons we just see all this and we can't help but draw the connection between this movie and those real life news stories so it's pretty insane that a movie would just take the stance like uh yeah if the the president's son is is uh doing all these things that are or reprehensible, we might just need to kill the president at some point because he's producing defective offspring. But I digress. That's honestly one of the more interesting aspects of this movie because it kind of speaks to the whole John Wick trend with Nobody, the Bob Odenkirk movie, The Raid 2, another one of these John Wick-esque movies that... Focus on sort of hyper violence and hyper competence and uh, disrupting criminal enterprises, and then the upcoming Monkey Man movie di- directed by Dev Patel for uh, Monkey Paw Productions, Jordan Peele's studio. So this is definitely a trend we've seen spring up in recent years, spawned by John Wick and and the Raid uh, franchises. But how I view that as a uh, as a uh, communication scholar with a master's degree. I use that by analyzing movies. And what I, I glean from this one is that um, it's sort of a, a, a sign of the times where people are feeling like nothing really changes for the better in politics anymore. Uh, we keep seeing these things like the overturn of Roe v. Wade or all these laws being enacted that don't benefit and actively harm average people. We just feel a sense of, of political lack of agency or just a lack of hope for the future and really what movies like john wick and the beekeeper probably like give people and why they're so popular is a sense that they just want a a beekeeper like figure to appear in real life that will sort of protect the hive and do what's best for humanity and just take action into his own hands and honestly like Bring about change for the better by any means necessary, since voting clearly isn't uh, doing enough at the moment, and there's really just no path forward people can see. So that lack of agency that people have with with politics is probably fueling the popularity of, of these movies where uh, it could be from the far-right QAnon point of view, from the, the left-wing side of just wanting things to change for the better that these movies give us a, a fantasy of a world where things can for the change for the better, where there is an individual capable of of bringing about change, delivering justice, uh, when in the real world we see quite the opposite is happening, where justice is not being delivered. But I digress. Back to the, the plot of the movie where Josh Hutcherson playing the head of the scam organizations, bearing a, a passing resemblance to Hunter Biden, and, uh, his mother bearing a, a resemblance to Hillary Clinton. So definitely gives the movie more of a, a right-wing turn in that way, where the bad guys are, are prominent Democratic figures. But Slay um, basically continues on his rampage from the low-level scam call site to the medium-level scam call site, and then eventually to the, the upper echelon, to the president's beach house in Cape Cod, where her and her son are, are throwing a party it sort of harkens to the Obamas throwing a, a party at their sort of Cape Cod or Martha's Vineyard um, residence. So another democratic political figure connection there. So David Ayer may be uh, on that QAnon train or maybe the writers of this film, but definitely gives a little little more smattering of, of all sorts of, of views throughout the political spectrum here. But in that sequence... Um, in route to that, Jason Statham's Adam Clay basically has to fight off hordes of of FBI SWAT team agents, fight off hordes of the mercenaries that the president and more so the president's son's protector, played by Jeremy Irons, which we assume is sort of a head of a, a private security firm. It's implied he's ex intelligence, maybe ex CIA and he has a, a history with the president, so Jeremy Irons definitely chewing up every scene he has in this. For some reason, the highest levels of, of uh, U.S. intelligence and defense are somehow South African in terms of the mercenaries and British in terms of the, the heads of these departments, so not sure what's going on. Maybe it's just the accent makes them feel more uh, more qualified, but Americans definitely have a a thing for those uh anglo accents but back to the back to the story so after clay gets to the mid-level site breaks in fighting the FBI SWAT team the private mercenaries and then stapling the Thorne Belford figures manager's head there in a, in a pretty entertaining little torture scene that doesn't feel too too gruesome we get the information that it is indeed the president's son that is the brain behind this whole scam call operation so from that point clay gets the idea to deliver the final sort of justified blow against this organization by taking off taking out the the head of it cutting off the head of the snake and sending a message like no more scamming old people out of their money uh he keeps saying that line basically to that effect uh, almost Tim Robinson style in each of the scam call facilities where he makes some sort of swear an oath to, to stop this uh, bad behavior sort of reminiscent of the way old people will talk down to us about our uh, behavior. They deem to be uh, less than satisfactory. So again, the beekeeper just cementing himself as the ultimate sort of, um, a vicarious old person that they can live their their deepest uh, desires through. So, after getting the information, finding out there's a party in Cape Cod for the president's son and that they're throwing, he makes it his mission to get in. We see a pretty entertaining sequence of just how he breaks into the facility, disguising himself as the inspector checking all the trucks and then eventually just waltzing right into to the the party. So, after that, he he moseys around pretty nondescript, gets a visual of the president, and we can assume from there that, based on the context clues of him talking about removing the queen for producing defective young, he's going to kill the president. Obviously, the FBI can't allow that. The FBI agent, uh, daughter of Eloise Parker, comes back. Uh, she's sort of reading about beekeepers through this whole movie, but honestly, pretty much uh, taking a backseat to to Statham's beekeeper, just sort of analyzing the wake of carnage that he's leaving, and not really proactively doing much, but just analyzing, much like we are, uh, sort of serving as the audience surrogate character there. She notices Clay's in the building, uh, chase ensues, and uh, Clay has to uh, get creative with, with just how he's going to, one, get to the president and her and her uh, her son went to exactly how he's going to solve this problem of of punishing the the scam call empire so that's one of the big questions during the say, this chase scene is he uh, is he actually the good guy is he going to go rogue kill the president which is uh no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on a pretty big no no we can all agree that killing the president might not be the uh, best course of action, at least in the universe of this movie, would be sort of a, a disqualifying character trait. Killing the president would probably turn Statham's character from a sympathetic good guy, a uh, protagonist, to a anti-hero pretty quick. But en route to to getting to the president and her son, who are locked in sort of her study Talking about what's happened, it's revealed. He, re- uh, um, Josh Hutcherson, reveals that uh, the funding came from his scam operation. The president is is flabbergasted. This isn't how she wanted to win the election. So, uh, it's revealed there that the president probably had no idea that this is where the money came from. She's probably more upstanding than her son, and uh, this is where she's a bit more sympathetic in the eyes of the audience. So, it makes the ending make a little more sense, but. Statham's basically boss-fighting his way through the grunts on the stairs and the hallways and the private security firm that the president and uh, Jeremy Irons has hired to protect her son. So we see that. Pretty creative action scenes reminiscent of other hallway scenes, other movies like John Wick. We've seen it all before. So it might not be as entertaining as those other movies, but it scratches the same itch. Uh, There is this one security agent... That has revealed that he's killed a beekeeper before, that is from South Africa. So he has a pretty uh entertaining accent that I I begged as Scottish at first, but he uh, almost looks like fat bastard from the Austin Powers movies. So it's kinda kinda entertaining just anytime he's on screen chewing up the, the scenery there. But this agent reveals prior to all hell breaking loose to Jeremy Irons, to the president, to Josh Hutcherson. That he has indeed killed a beekeeper before, but only by the skin of his teeth, since he also reveals that the beekeeper he killed also took his one of his legs with him. So, he has a prosthetic leg, he's uh, a big tank of a man, and honestly, I I would love for him to have just been the, the big bad of the movie the whole time, instead of having this um, wacky QAnon political conspiracy, but, you know, maybe... Much of a good thing wouldn't be wouldn't be as enjoyable, but I love that performance uh, of the sort of head shock troop for the defense force against the Beekeeper. Uh, and it was really entertaining once they uh, confronted each other in that sort of final hallway scene fight where all the other grunts, all the other security has been dealt with by Clay and it's just mano a mano, clay versus Mr. South Africa, and uh of course how how else would it end, but clay uh doing that classic sort of john wick versus common knife fight sequence where he uh sort of reverses the knife shoves it into uh his adversary's chest and it looks like he couldn't kill more than one beekeeper because jason statham uh took care of business there but he had to get pretty creative because uh i don't know how many uh how many stabs the average person can take but He, The South African shock troop guy, he functioned more like a a rhino than a man because he took quite a few stabs to the chest. So uh, really, really speaks to the durability of that character there. But uh, nonetheless, entertaining fight, not the best I've seen, but scratches that itch. That's all I can really say about this entire movie, really. But once Jason Statham gets to the, uh, the locked room where the president and her son are, he breaks in. Seemingly nobody is able to follow very close behind him because he would have about like he had about three-ish minutes. Just him alone with the president and her son, where uh, her son has has a uh, sort of gone past the point of no return, where he's killed sort of the head of the CIA or head of the FBI in in the process. So he's been. Uh, deemed irredeemable in the vocabulary of the movie, whereas the president herself, she has, uh, by having virtue of not having any information of how she earned the money for her campaign before, is comes off more innocent than, than we were led to believe prior. So, of course, how else would the movie end? But Jason Statham breaks in. Josh Hutcherson takes his own mother hostage, uh, sort of taking as a last-ditch effort it's revealed he's on a, quite the cocktail of drugs, so he's probably a, a little coked out at the moment, but Jason Statham does what he came to do. He kills Josh Hutcherson with a, a pinpoint precision thought right between the eyes wow. as he's holding his mother hostage, but we believe it because he's the beekeeper. He's he's a professional's professional, best in the world, and uh, yeah, that's how the movie basically basically ends with... Eloise's FBI daughter coming in, but uh, since she's the first one there, she has that touching, uh, she shares a, 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 a well, eye contact with Jason Statham's Adam Clay, and there's a mutual sort of understanding there where they nod, and and Statham's character is allowed to escape into the sunset, sort of cementing the the movie's statement that what he did was justified, and we're left with sort of that not quite melancholy, but not quite happy ending, where he's killed the, the president's son, hearkening back to the Hunter Biden comparison, where maybe that's what half of America wants to happen, where they just want an individual to to kill the president's son and just get it over with, and that would be the the sort of justice they want to seek. But that's the movie, the Beekeeper. uh Digging a little deeper into the meaning of the movie, I already touched on sort of the lack of agency or trust in our political and economic systems. So we sort of fantasize about a a beekeeper sort of uh, figure that'll manifest in real life and restore order and deliver justice in a world where all the news stories we see, all of the, uh, the headlines we read sort of just take away more and more every day, chip away at our sense that there is justice in the world. So maybe a beekeeper is necessary and there's no other way since voting seems to not be enough anymore for for a lot of people and that sort of dissolution is is setting in. It also functions as an exploitation movie like I mentioned before, sort of using news headlines and conspiracy theories from various political points of view as the uh the impetus for the the story itself, so again bringing back Quentin Tarantino's cinema speculation, he he had a a section about how Dirty Harry was a lot like the, a lot like how the Beekeeper is today, where it was mainly a movie that old people really saw themselves in, sort of lashing out against the world around them of young people and and strange ideas that they might be scared of. So Dirty Harry. Uh, he has the hot dog scene where he just guns down three uh, supposedly and implied Black Panthers in the streets of San Francisco. So Dirty Harry had Black Panthers to to gun down to sort of express that political discontent at the time in the movie, whereas the beekeeper, phone scammers, and, uh, and President's son himself. So this can sort of read in a similar way as, as Dirty Harry, which is uh, honestly one of the biggest compliments i could give to the, to the beekeeper but it reads in in that way where this is what old people are scared of this is what older people are are wanting to lash out against and it really speaks to them so phone scammers and uh the president's son uh, are are two things sort of maybe drum one drummed up by by the news media another a very real problem people experience every day that are are sort of used for uh, emotional connection, and uh, just they play on that dissatisfaction with real life that we have that really speaks to some audiences, and I think that's what's given the movie some some staying power at the box office as well as some cultural resonance. It uses familiar vocabulary as well. The film uses sort of the John Wick mold of like socially conscious action where there is sort of a, a secret dark organization at play where one justified character can sort of solve all the problems just by killing a lot of people. It also plays to old people, which is a fairly reliable audience for political means as well as at the box office apparently. So it exploits those uh common everyday things from news stories to phone scams we we see every day. And it also has that QAnon angle as well. So it it uses an eclectic range of conspiracy theories that we also see on social media that uh it it sort of makes its story from there so really this is a a, um conspiracy theory it should be conspiracy theory's favorite movie since uh it, it really doesn't have a political point of view it just sort of assumes all conspiracy theories are correct and then goes from there which is sort of a wild way to construct a movie but it makes for some, some entertaining moments. Uh, it has a safeish formula. The elements from the Wolf of Wall Street to sort of denote which characters are the bad guys. As well as the elements from John Wick and that franchise to denote which characters are the good guys. That we should be rooting for. And it's just like really any other Jason Statham movie from the last 20 years. Except this one has that mold it fits into. So other Statham movies I know Haven't really reached this level of success. I know recent movies he's been in, like uh, The Meg 2. That might be an exception since it's its own sort of franchise there. He was in Operation Fortune, that Guy Ritchie movie that came out in 2023 where I was barely aware it existed, but I don't think it made much money. The Mechanic, that's another Statham movie I've heard a lot about. The Crank movies, uh, as well as just all these sort of uh, just paint-by-numbers jason statham pictures like parker the expendables safe just all these movies that really you can copy paste and it's just another jason statham movie every year but again this one seems to have uh broken that mold by having this sort of eclectic set of politics that takes from both sides of the aisle and every sort of level of of rationality and it uh also has sort of a A message without really having a message of just being discontent with the world so moving on to the finale my rating for this movie and uh, final thoughts i rated this movie a a 2.5 on letterboxd i think that's a a fair rating so like a 5 out of 10 like it's entertaining enough it's a, a fun movie without being like a statement movie even though it is political it doesn't really say anything politically So I kind of dock at points there. And that whole middle section where he's going to sort of the mid-level manager of the scam operation, kind of a snooze fest for me. There are some entertaining sequences where he's evading capture and and fighting back against the mercenaries. But other than that, I think the whole middle section, you could have 15 minutes out and no one would have been aware otherwise. I also think the, the beekeeper underworld itself... Since he's the retired beekeeper, it's shown in a sort of gas station fight sequence that there is a new beekeeper, and spoiler, he killed the new beekeeper because, again, this is an old person movie appealing to old people, so of course the older, more wizened uh, beekeeper is superior to the new uh, hair-dyed, sort of, it looks like, cyberpunk beekeeper of the uh, current generation. So I think they could have dug a little more into that but it did look pretty like derivative of the John Wick movies, so maybe there's a reason they didn't dig in more. They didn't have many uh new ideas to share. But I do think the Beekeeper is worth watching just because it's kind of a fun time to see all these crazy conspiracy theories displayed on screen, as well as uh the you know, it was it was passable action. If you're a John Wick fan like myself, you might find some enjoyable sequences as well as some uh, fun action set pieces, but this has been uh, it for the first episode of of Critical Cinema. So, The Beekeeper, the first critical movie of 2024. Happy to bring it to you. Hopefully in the future I will have some guests, I may conduct some interviews, and uh, I'll definitely be back with, with more movies, either from 2024 or critical movies from the past. So, I've always wanted to talk about Sorcerer, so maybe I'll get a one or two of my boys to talk about sorcerer with me. And uh, that's the really the only film on my radar from the the past that I want to talk about, but I'll definitely be looking forward to Dune two in the near future, as well as Dev Patel's monkey man, which I mentioned earlier. So John wick fan got to keep up with these, these John wick clones, but thank you so much for, for listening to my first episode of critical cinema. Uh, I'll be going on vacation next week, so I don't know when episode number two will be, but I'll try and keep up with a, a regular schedule as soon as I can, maybe releasing an uh, episode every two weeks and hopefully get that down to an episode every week. But thanks again for listening. Uh, if if you want to keep up with the show, I do have an Instagram set up, which I will be posting on once this episode drops, and I also have a a Patreon where... I won't be uh, releasing any paywalled episodes yet, but keep an eye out there for my free episodes since that will also be a a place to get in touch with me. But again, this is Critical Cinema. I'm Grant Clevegard, signing off.